Yeah. So today we're really excited to have John Gillespie Jr. on the show, also known as SWIM. Uh, he's an incoming PhD student at UC Irvine's Comparative Literature Program, a poet and a recording artist hailing from Newark, Delaware, uh, currently based in Orange County, California. His research interests are in black suicide, the relationship between scientific development, specifically the internet and medicine, and anti-black racism, as well as theories of black aesthetics. He recently released his first single entitled Lo-Fi Suicides, which can be found anywhere from SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Tidal, and more. In addition to this, his written academic and creative work has been published in places like Propter Nos, Grub Street Literary Magazine, The Nation, and the Encyclopedia of Racism in American Film. Thanks so much for being here with us today, John. Thank you for having me. I'm happy and excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I guess just to kick us off, just, uh, you know, I just read your bio there, but why don't you tell us a little bit uh, more about yourself and your work? Uh, and in particular, you know, I'd like to start off with some of your studies uh, and hear about, you know, what you focus on and what draws you to these topics specifically. Um, well, so I'm an incoming PhD student at UC Irvine. And I'm in the comparative literature program. And um, part of what comparative literature is about is uh, it kind of like in the name is comparative literature. But it's kind of like, for me, I take that to be the drawing on and drawing upon interdisciplinary literature bases as a means to create concepts that can allow us to understand the world more clearly. And specifically, what I'm most focused on is using concepts from uh, black black theories, specifically Afro-pessimism, alongside of uh, continental philosophy. Specifically, I'm interested in uh, Felix Guattari and Michel Foucault, and taking that and putting that next to uh, affective neuroscience and studies in uh, psychiatry, et cetera, to really think about uh, more coherently how we can uh, think clearly about what it means to have for black suicide to function and what is different about suicide conceptually when it's late related to black people. Um, and, and my music is really just a kind of outlet and alternative for me to try to deal with my own mental health issues and my own uh, I guess you could say like effective uh, drives and trying to figure out how to uh, continue to exist in the world, I guess you could say as it is. Thank you. Yeah. I was wondering, you know, maybe if we can start off, um, you mentioned, you know, that uh, your work is intended to bring a fuller picture and an understanding of why suicide among black people in the black community is different uh, and how it functions. And I was wondering, you know, if we can maybe go into that a little bit um, and, you know, maybe you can discuss some of the disparities and the motivating factors, uh, you know, as you found in your research. Um, so I, I will say, I'll start off by saying I'm, I'm like, as an incoming PhD, I still have 
a lot of room to grow and learn and continue to, you know, build upon my knowledge on these topics. But I would say that my, my initial my initial research has really been focused on making two primary points about black suicide, which the first one is primarily that to think about black suicide, we have to think about uh, bodies and we have to think about uh, the body in relationship to the psyche and how a black body is a black body, a, a black psyche is 100% oftentimes in relationship to this body that is oftentimes seen as uh, seen as violent, seen as abject, seen as obje- object, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other point that I often try to make through a lot of my research and the papers and the things that I've been thinking through is that whereas oftentimes in discussions and specifically in texts of philosophers who are thinking about uh, suicide, they often focus on what I often call the maxim of life, which is, I argue, um, this maxim or this idea that life is always already to prefer to that of death. And I think an inherent factor of, of black suicide studies or studying black people inside of the study of suicide is recognizing that that, not, that might not always necessarily be the case because black lives don't matter. Hmm. So if black lives don't matter to the world paradigmatically, then we have to start to think about black suicide differently. And the way for me to think about that differently is to think about the ways in which death becomes desired as the, as the framework to think about suicide, not the way in which life becomes renounced. Thank you. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit uh, here because, you know, we started out of the gate, like super heavy, super serious. And I want to try to lighten it up as light as we can possibly get um, with suicide. But, uh, you know, I was at uh, Femi's uh, release party and that's how I got to hear your work and uh, to watch you uh, in action. And really that's what drew me in uh, and just listening to uh, your song and, you know, or your, your songs and the work um, that you were presenting and sharing with us was really moving and powerful and it resonated with me. And uh, as someone that's working at, you know, these intersections of, you know, philosophy and art and music and critical race theory uh, to explain, explore these questions of Black people's suicide. Um, You know, what specifically, uh, and you said, you know, earlier when you were responding to Brian that you, you know, your own experience uh, led you, you know, to doing this. But how do you see this, you know, your music as important to this exploration is, I guess, what I'm asking. Um, So, like, the last song um, that I performed at... uh, Last song that performed at Femi's uh, release party, I um, and shout out right to Femi, thing. right? <laughs> shout out to Femi, yes, always. Uh, the, the 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 there's a part in that song where I say, um, um, how am I gonna make it through life? All the wrong is hard to do right. All the longer I have some insight, and what I'm talking about is. That is literally a direct quote from a song that I wrote in fifth grade 
where because I keep I keep a box full of all the hip hop songs that I've written for my entire all the things I've written on pieces of paper I keep a box inside of my house, and I started to write music when I was in fifth grade. I started to write music even younger than that, but I started. I have documents starting from fifth grade, and this is a question that I wrote in fifth grade that I was asking to God in the song. I say, "How am I to make it through life with all the wrong? It's hard to do right." Mm-hmm. And so, so with me dealing with uh, dealing with wrong, dealing with ethical concerns, dealing with problems of morality, have always been directly related to dealing with the existential questions of trying to figure out how to get through the end, get through the day. And music oftentimes has been the format that I've used to help me not only articulate, you know, these questions and these answers, but it's also been the platform that I use to literally try to embody and perform a practice of survival for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, as someone, you know, uh, as an artist uh, myself, as someone who paints and uh, uses that as a vehicle to um, deal with, you know, with life in general, um, always, you know, struck by uh, I'm painting stuff that, you know, at least to me is tends to be really pretty. Um, and <laughs> and I you know, well, I've tried to be more like overt in the political statement. I also kind of resist that in a way. I don't know if that's making yeah. sense. Yeah. But, you know, I'm also, um, because I need, I need to have at least a space that doesn't, you know, like, that doesn't feel like shit to me. And yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Do you feel me like are you um No, no, no. I I I feel you completely. Um and I really I I, I don't want to cut you off. So you you should finish. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. I I want this to be a conversation, uh, not a Q&A. Okay. Yeah, I I I I was thinking about this because I have the song that I haven't released yet. And the song is uh like I I've created the song specifically for my friends. You know what I mean? Like, the song is called Gang Clothes. Mm-hmm. And it's literally literally the chorus, and I performed this at Femi still. The chorus says, stack your money and keep your motherfucking gang clothes. Right? Yes, I, I for me, mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, and for me, this song is like, I was, I was thinking about this in the context of, like, my work and the context of, you know, of course, trying to get your PhD and thinking about the kind of respectability that comes with that as a, as a profession. And I was saying to myself that all of this music is suicide prevention music. Oh. And, that, and, and the reason why is because what it means to prevent suicide, a lot of times we have this very, very strict, constricting definition about what that is, what requires a suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, we call these numbers or we go to these clinics or we go to like therapists and all these things are important. All these things matter. But I think that part of what I try to do with my art is show that what it means to do suicide prevention is like a performance that happens on a day-to-day basis in life that yep. doesn't necessarily have to be like, this is suicide prevention, but mm. this, is, uh, this is something that reduces the desire for death for me. And mm-hmm. that is what suicide prevention is really about, reduce, reducing the desire to die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think uh, that's that's brilliant. Um, you stated that much better than I did. Um, you're really honest and raw in terms of how you talk about um, your own personal struggle. And I'm finding that, or not finding, but I'm thinking about this in the context of, you know, culture, right? And culturally speaking, um, how do you see, you know, or what has been your experience um, with, you know, I don't know, accessing mental health is the way I want to phrase this, but, you know, how does adding that layer of, you know, when we talk, as you said, um, in your previous, you know, comments, um, that there's a way to think about how we approach mental health. That's what I want to say. You know, there's a way that we mm -hmm. think about, you know, uh, it looks like this thing over here. It looks like a person sitting across the table from someone or, you know, in a room with someone talking to them um, about X, Y, Z. And, uh, or it looks like something else. And I'm wondering how those, um, how your own experience with that um, contributes to this broader conversation that you're hoping to spark or that you are sparking because we're here having the conversation um, <laughs> about, you know, about these issues. Um, I, I think, uh, so one thing that for, for my personal experience is one of the things that I've, I've experienced is that even with my therapist, when I would go to my therapist, one of the topics of conversation that was relatively off, off guard in the sense that, like, if you brought it up, it, it resulted in consequences, was talking about suicide. So I could not go to, so for example, you'll go to your therapist, your therapist will ask you, are you feeling suicidal? And then you will say, yes, I feel suicidal. And then they say, do you have a plan? And if you have a plan then you're, and you say yes, and you follow these tracks of questions, ultimately what ends up happening is that you get put into a, a clinic. Mm -hmm. So, and, and clinics for me, um, and this is something I also tried to write about, clinics play a role in, uh, in, in regimes of biopower mm -hmm. in the sense of controlling people's lives and, and restricting them. So when you go to a clinic, you can only talk to your parents for a certain amount of time on the phone. Your family can only visit to you a certain amount of times when they want to visit you. You can't speak to your friends. If they do come visit you, there's a short amount of period of time. And it's regimented in a ways and a lot of times that resemble prisons, right? Absolutely. So for me, so for me, I think that it's important to think about alternatives to suicide prevention that allows for an open conversation about these discussions. And I think music, I think dance, I think uh, theater, I think art, I think art is one of those ways in which suicide prevention as a as a, as a format can be used to think more clearly and open up more conversational spaces for people to feel comfortable with having these conversations when they previously were not before. Mm. Yeah, as you're talking, one of the things that uh, comes to mind is also how um, we tend to really look towards institutions. And as someone who has a PhD, and I get it, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the uh, quite a few years removed from uh, from being in grad school and what have you, 
But, uh, you know, what I really wanted to say is that, you know, art has been really important to me as uh, a way to survive this shitty ass world. Right. So yeah. not just dealing with, you know, my son's incarcerations, but, you know, relationships, um, life in general. Right. So whatever is yeah. going on. Um, and at periods in my life when writing was not available to me. Right. Like I really felt like I couldn't access writing, you know, like it just felt like not the right way to go about this. Um, painting worked <laughs> and I, you know, look around over, you know, like five, seven years of work now. And I'm like, well, I have written, right. That this is a language yeah. and it's saying something and it may not be obvious to, you know, the viewer, um, but something is there. And I feel like yeah. in a lot of ways, um, within the confines of institutions and the way that we tend to approach or institutions tend to approach um, these various things, um, that they want to impose a framework or a model on, you know, on art and to say, well, art yeah. can be art therapy if it looks like this and if you have these credentials. And I'm yeah. really thinking about how we disrupt those, you know, uh, disrupt those models um, so that it is not only um, available and accessible um, to a much wider array of people. Anyone who wants it should be able to get it. Um, but how important it is for the very things that we're talking about. I mean, I've said before, I've said it on Twitter, I've said it, you know, I think I've said it on uh, on this show in previous episodes that, you know, um, I have a son with a bipolar disorder. And um, when he went to prison, he had a dual diagnosis. So he was bipolar, but he was using um, as well. And he's always painted. He's always painted. He's always drawn. And in prison, um, in most prisons, you can't even have art supplies. And if you're in a particular level in that prison, you don't have access to those things, you know? And it's like, I'm thinking, yeah. you know, you're talking about biopower and, you know, Foucault a lot here and um, thinking about it through that lens. Um, I don't know. I, I guess there's less of a question and more just me kind of, you know, meditating on that. And I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, well, I definitely um, relate to that a lot. Like, I like I always say the evolution of my writing was, uh, it started with hip-hop, and then from hip-hop, I started to write, like, little aphorisms. I would write, like, little, like, one of the, the longest, like, one of the things I've said before that has stuck with me since, like, high school was, there is no tomorrow today. Mm -hmm. Something I wrote, like, when I first started to make this transition from, uh, hip-hop to writing aphorisms. And from writing aphorisms, I started to write poems. And from writing poems, I started to write spoken word poetry. And from spoken word poetry, I started to write essays. And now I do, like, scholarship and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But throughout all this process of evolution of writing, I started to, I, I let go of hip-hop due to, like, a kind of, like, of the, 
I guess you could say the the need to be more proper in terms of my development, in terms of who I am in relationship to how I showcase and portray myself into the world. You know what I mean? Because there's there if you're a spoken word poet, right? Your spoken word poet, there is a, a sort of caricature or image that gets brought about with that type of person. If you're an academic scholar, there's a certain caricature and image that comes with that type of person. But then if you're a hip-hop artist, there's a certain caricature and image that comes with that type of person. And then if you're a Ph.D. who makes hip-hop music, there's also a certain caricature and image that comes with the type of hip-hop music that you're supposed to make. You know, so there, so for example, I'm supposed to be a Nas or uh, uh, I don't know, like a Nas or a Tupac or something like that, in order to mm-hmm. be able to be a rapper who also does his PhD. But for me, what I've learned is that part of what hip hop has done for me my whole entire life is not only allowed me to express myself in terms of like my emotions and my feelings, which my whole entire life have always been an overload, but it's also allowed for me to brag about myself mm-hmm. in a language, in mm-hmm. a music with a beat that counteracts the depression or the suicidal thoughts or the insecurities that get generated because of my mental health concerns, mm-hmm. right? So, like, mm-hmm. I went, so I go to the music, I go to the music to, to uplift myself. So when I say stack your money and get your motherfucking gang, keep your motherfucking gang close, what I'm really saying at the same time is, like, you can do this. Like, you can make it through this. You know what I mean? And I just learned a lot of ways how how the language of hip-hop and in its language, not in the academic language, not in, like, the needs-to-be-conscious language, yeah. was enough in and of itself to do for me and for the world what it needs to do for me and for the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are enough. You are enough. Yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, whatever academia or, you know, demands or whatever, it's like, keep, you know, keep who you are. You know, keep it real, as they say. <laughs> keep it real. Yeah, um, keep it real. And, keep it real. And, don't don't lose that shit. You know, if there's it, not that you need my advice, but if I were going to give you any advice about grad school, it's like, you know, um, be who the hell you are. Um, and, you know, don't let those folks tell you you got to be this thing or that thing in order to be, you know, considered a legitimate academic. Um, I think that's part of the problem in general with academia. But that's another mm-hmm. show. <laughs> yeah. That's a conversation for another show. Um, Brian, do you have a question? Yeah, I have like a half-baked question. Um, I'm really enjoying, you know, listening to the the back and forth between you two. Um, and you know, we started. I guess the last thing you said, maybe I'm retreading a little bit of ground here, but um, you know, the issue of stigma and sort of access uh, or perceived access to to mental health care, um, you know, as a barrier comes to mind. And you know, listening to you talk about you know, the caricatures around, you know, the different roles uh, that you might inhabit and, you know, listening to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, for you, suicide prevention involves doing things that make you want to live. You know, I just wondered if you could talk, you know, a little bit about, uh, you know, what your music does, um, 
you know, in terms of addressing this stigma and letting people know, you know, like you're, like you guys were just saying, you know, that you are worth it. Um, you know, at the end there, uh, I don't know, kind of a jumbled um, question. So, but... so there's two things I was thinking about in relation to what you're saying. And, um, the first thing is, uh, the first thing is, I, I think it's important to point out that I, 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 and this is a crucial thing for my research is that I think that it's important that it's not, it's not, I think that suicide prevention or suicide studies or study of suicide has to, it, it has to not be about making, it's not just about making life livable or mm. making life more desire, making life more desirable. It's about making death not desirable. Mm. So for example, the, the difference for me and the important distinction for me is that you could hate life but not want to die, and that can keep you alive, you know what I mean? But I think the, one of the most important things about suicidal thoughts is that death is desirable mm-hmm. over, like, not only do you hate life, or not only do you, and some people who are suicidal don't necessarily hate life, you know what I mean? But it's just the fact that death is desirable, and I think that that's an important distinction because we have to work on creating a politics, a psychopolitics that is, that reduces the ways in which death becomes desirable, especially in the case of my research for black people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, and then to your uh, second question, uh, your second part of your question, which I think was about uh, access to resources, correct? Yeah, I, I guess I was just wondering about like your own experiences with dealing with stigma, you know, around these issues like mental health and and uh, and suicide, and how you know your music addresses it or seeks to counteract it, uh, or what your experiences oh. have, have been like making making art, you know, about these topics publicly, you know, and and in hip hop and and in other spaces like that. Well, one of the things that is written probably on my medical records or something like that is when I was talking to a doctor, you know, about suicide and about my suicidal thoughts or whatever, um, I told them that I don't think that suicide is a weakness. I think that it's a strength that I don't have. It's a strength that I do not have the power to commit yet. Right, and they wrote that down to say that that was the reason why I was pathological. Like that was that was a statement mm-hmm. that was that was like, all right, this dude really needs to go away. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in response. I said that in response as well to my father, who at the time came up to me and was like, "Why are you being so weak?" You know, like when I was going through my own things. And I think that there is this stigma around suicide, but at the same time, I think that the stigma is slowly being fought back against. And a big part of that, and I talk about this in Lo-Fi Suicides a little bit, is has a lot to do with the internet. Mm-hmm. And the almost, and the way that, and so specifically one of the things that I say at the, in the second verse is I'm talking about, I talk about streaming my suicide. Right, so I say, uh, so I turn on the feed. I'm feeling dizzy and spinning, hoping that everyone sees, right? It's hard to maintain the stigma 
of suicide when people are streaming their suicides on the internet mm-hmm. and people and people are watching these things so part of my interest in the internet as well has to do with how is this affecting us when we're watching people desire death on the internet all the time and of course it comes with the kind of critiques of romanticization that comes with this but it's not a romanticization in my opinion it's a realization that these things cannot continue to go unthought. Right. If we're going to actually deal with, if, if, if it cannot continue to go unthought, if it's in our face. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, to dovetail off of that uh, thought, um, you know, here at the podcast, we, you know, talk about prisons and uh, through an abolitionist lens, right? And, uh, more and more lately, I've been very deliberate about what that means in every single space that I encounter, every single space that pretty much exists. So not just in our little activist circles or big activist circles or what have you, but you know, um, when you go to the doctors, um, when you seek out mental health care, and you know, as you were talking, you know, uh, earlier. You mentioned um, basically what the protocols are when you say that, you know, when you're asked uh, by a mental health professional if you, you know, have or have had suicidal ideations and, you know, the responses that are triggered as a result of an affirmative response to that question. Um, And as an abolitionist, you know, it's like, it's really, it's a, it's a question that I don't see us talking much about, right? That it's not something that really comes up because it's like, oh, we talk about seeking out mental health, but you can't actually be honest about where you are in your treatment if you don't want to be locked up against your will. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. um, I don't know. I don't know if your research or you you plan to talk about that in your research, um, you know, but I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, one of the theoretical frameworks that um, situate my work is Afro-pessimism. And one of the crucial, I think, and interesting parts of this framework is about the way that with Black people desire or black people need from the world are too large for the world to truly handle. So like when it comes down to what it is that a black person wants when they talk about what it means to have liberation, it would literally mean an Afro-pessimist framework to have to end the world. Mm. So a lot of people talk about this as an abolition of the world that needs to happen in order for black people to be able to truly achieve what someone might call as liberation. It's like the whole entire system needs to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, there, and there's a way in which I, 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 I apparently, like I completely have an affinity with this relation. And when I think about this specifically in relationship to the clinic, I use that oftentimes to critique a lot of people who provide an alternative to the prison system as the psych clinic or the mental health facility because Mm -hmm. the mental health facility is also anti-black 
Absolutely. It also has these histories, these histories and genealogies of producing harm and biopower and necropower on on top of black bodies. Mm-hmm. So from part of part of it for me is thinking about how black thought can be the horizon through which we think about abolition of the world, specifically through these two domains that are the that is the prison system which I write about as being a place where they go to ex- to control what I call like ex- black people who are exploding, mm-hmm. right? And then the psychiatric clinic, which I argue is the place that they go to control black people who are imploding. Mm-hmm. 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 Absolutely. Brian? Yeah, I'm just looking through my questions here. You know, on the... I guess it's uh, switching gears slightly. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what you've come across in your own work. Um, you know, when we talk about the sort of research that's being done and the lenses through which that research is being done um, in medical fields surrounding mental health and suicide, um, you know, I, I, we were, you know, I was going through some articles actually, and I found this one on CNN that was talking about suicide in the black community, and they had a quote. Uh, from one researcher who was, you know, basically saying, like, we don't know what's behind this. And he said, most of the previous research has largely concerned white suicide. So we don't even know if the same risk and protective factors apply to black youth. And I'm, I was just wondering, yeah. like, you know, what, you know, from your experience in, in doing this work and this research, you know, what kind of impact has racism had on the on like the depth and avail- availability of research and understanding uh, on this topic, and you know, how is our access to information and data on this? Um, well, I will say so. A lot of, especially right now, there's a, and this is like my interest in science. There's a turn that's happening, especially because of a uh, uh, a neuroscientist by the name of Yak Pox Pansek. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, she she basically opened the doors towards effective neuroscience which is essentially the science, the, the science of the brain and emotions. And so there's been this flood of like research that's starting to happen now about the brain and emotions and how that relates to psychiatry and which is ultimately returning into this thing that they're called, trying to transform into what's now being called clinical neuroscience. But there are articles that are written um, that talk about how so much of the studies in neuroscience, and this is kind of a problem across science around the board, especially when it comes down to like biology specifically, mm-hmm. is they're, they're focused on what they call quote unquote weird populations, which is Western, educated, industrialized, um, and I forget what R and D stands for, um, and basically white people. Like so mm-hmm. many of these studies mm-hmm. that are being done are being done on white people. And this is why a lot of what I say about suicide, I say is that black suicide is in less than thought. Because even the concept of suicide that is kind of semantically understood as an intentional act, right, to kill yourself, right, Mm -hmm. doesn't always make sense, especially when one thinks about, uh, if one wants to look at the history of black suicide starting at slavery, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are ways that slaves tried to kill themselves that were not necessarily intentional acts they just might have stopped eating 
you know what I mean? Or they might have just, like, or, for example, uh, they might have done things that were especially wrong because they knew that that might get them killed, you know what I mean? So they wouldn't have to necessarily kill themselves, but they would be killed by someone else. And you see this also happen in black communities a lot of times where you get suicide by cops, you know what I mean? So it's like blackness, blackness as a category really disorients the category of suicide as we conceptually understand it in the West. And that ultimately destroys the frameworks in which a lot of scientific studies who, that are looking into suicide are thinking about blackness and suicide as well. A couple of things, and that's why I was, you know, quiet for a moment there. Um, talking about suicide is still a really difficult issue, I think, um, in general, but more specifically in um, in some of our communities. I know as, you know, in my household, that was not something that was ever discussed. Um, and... <sighs> Thinking about, you know, because what I don't want to see happen or what I don't imagine, I imagine a very different, you know, world than the one that we currently have. Right. Um, And what I don't want to see happen is to have, you know, what we call diversity (laughs) being imposed in this space and using the same methods and approaches and tools to try to understand something that requires a very different way of thinking about it Mm -hmm. and a very different approach. Um, And I'm wondering, I guess, um, or just more thinking out loud, um, what would we need to do differently? How about that? What would we need to do differently? in terms of, you know, mental health care, um, to research, to understand, um, and to begin to really have frank discussions about this issue, um, anywhere. Um, well, one thing I would say on research, I'm actually, this is, what I'm writing my paper on right now. And the paper is called Preface to a Black Suicide Studies. And what I specifically say in that paper is that a black suicide studies is anti-disciplinary mm-hmm. in the sense that we have to be against disciplines, mm-hmm. right? I don't think, it's not about being interdisciplinary necessarily so, in the sense that you pull from here, you pull from there, pull from there, is that we have to pull from these disciplines and then in the fact of pulling from these disciplines rupture the disciplines that we're pulling from. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is essentially an important in terms of how we should do research on black suicide studies because the limits that are placed on the interdisciplinary conversations are still limits that will not allow us to get to thinking about how death becomes desirable. Mm-hmm. And so I think, so for example, the political movement that we still are in in this moment is a movement that is known as Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's, that's an extremely important and crucial movement. And by the same time, we have to think about why, are black, why is black death so desirable? Why, mm-hmm. does, why does the world require black death? And why does, as a result of the world requiring death, black death, 
so many black people end up desiring their own death as well and a multiplicity of ways that cannot necessarily be calculated and quantified in science studies or statistics or anything like that. Mm. So it becomes a completely different rearrangement of how we think about things because the most important thing in my mind is to think about this question and this problem of death. And mm. that's why I say that this is, uh, this is, uh, this is a, a thanatology in the sense that this is a study of death. Uh, to study black suicide is to study death and to think about these topics in ways that work towards the acknowledgement that desiring death is not something that should be pathologized. But most essentially, most essentially when we're thinking about black people, it's something that should be expected contrary to all the evidence. I mean, I mean, it's something that should be expected with the evidence that we have available to us in the ways in which black people live their lives. But the fact that that doesn't happen is more, in my opinion, uh, an incredible fact, not the fact that it does happen. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to work in reverse rather mm-hmm. than working working like you know as if this is the anomalous behavior mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brian? um yeah i you know i have a a question here that we ask all of our guests but we have touched uh on it you know in these last few questions so i'm just going to pose it and if you have anything to add on to what you said uh what you've said i think that would be great but you know typically we ask ask our guests you know either what does abolition mean to you or how do you or do you see your work as liberatory and if so how so um i will say what abolition means to me are right, so two things i think that those questions are different um mm-hmm. i think what abolition means to me is love um and i think that love is something that should not be romanticized is something that gets romanticized, but it cannot be romanticized because love is extremely difficult. And this relates to suicide because I always say to people, think about how difficult it is to love yourself and the flaws that you have within yourself and the ways that you deal with yourself and the, and the shit that you give yourself. Now, think about trying to love one other person. Now think about trying to love a community. Mm-hmm. Now think about trying to love a nation. Now think about trying to love a world. And for me, I think that what abolition is, is love in the most un- unbelievable sense. And it's something that is 100% worth fighting for and fighting towards and something that's 100% necessary. But people have to first recognize, I think, that it is love and that it's the most difficult love that is, po- that, that is, is a difficult love that is possible. Mm-hmm. And then in regards to liberation, in regards to liberation, I think that in a lot of ways, and this is me, and this is part of my, I guess you would say my pessimism, um, I think that in a lot of ways, liberation, the concept or an idea, gets in the way of our ability to love. And I think that it's an idea that itself should be abolished. And the reason why I say that is because I think it's wrapped up in utopic, romantic descriptions of what the world after this one might look like, where it's like we can stay in the midst of this world and start to abolish and start to love, but we first have to recognize that love is not 
liberation. Love is this messy, difficult thing that we have to work out all the time, not only with ourselves, but with ourselves, with others, and so on and so forth. Yes. Yes. That was a great answer. Yes, absolutely. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, watching you develop, watching, you know, what work um, you produce, uh, not just academically, but um, artistically as well. And, you know, um, how you bring all of that together. I mean, I'm hoping to see you know, that revolution in the Academy um, <laughs> happening, you know, <laughs> soon and would love to have you back on the show to talk about how your work um, evolves um, as it, you know, naturally will over uh, over time. So I'm really, I'm excited for you. I'm excited to have had you here today um, to talk about this. We're going to play um, your song uh, at the beginning of this and, uh, you know, certainly encourage people to go and download it, listen to it, follow you on Instagram and all the things that you have out there. Um, so do you want to share with people where they can find you and where they can get the song? Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram at I am swim underscore. And the music is found on SoundCloud, um, Insta- uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Tidal, all the streaming platforms that people use. And, yeah. And, uh, that, that's, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much, John. This was a really great conversation. Once I learned that you don't write story, I just had to do this for myself. Niggas, I don't want the glory Yeah, I'm just tired of living life in hell Yeah, living life in hell This is hell, living life in hell This is hell, living life in hell This is hell, living life in hell Yeah, living life in hell Yeah, living life in hell Once I learned that my life just don't mean
life in hell yeah. Living life in hell This is hell Living life in hell This is hell Living life in hell This is hell Living life in hell yeah. Living life in hell yeah. Living life in hell Once I learned the difference between loose and a rope I put a pause on my heart And took a pill from my soul And mixed the pills with my dough And mixed the dough with some Henny Hoping to noose up the world I think I'm tired and empty I think I'm tired of feeling Fucking happy or sad Fuck this shit, I relax I'm too depressed for the track So I just turn on the feet I think I'm dizzy and spinning Hoping that everyone sees my mother Thinking this is hell, bro This is hell, bro